Cook heads off towards um, New Zealand um, in this search for this unknown southern continent that geographers and um, and the Royal Society, particularly scientists, anticipated must still be somewhere in the southern hemisphere, that it was just waiting to be discovered. Um, this land mass that supposedly balanced the land mass in the northern hemisphere, which is why they expected it to exist somewhere. And of course, a lot of these tracks across the Pacific are really just um, an attempt to make landfall and see if they're going to come across this continent. Captain James Cook was 40 years old when he set off to search for a theoretical southern continent in the Pacific Ocean. But how do we know what we do about his voyages and encounters with indigenous peoples? At this point, he's still just a wealthy, amateur, botanist, enthusiastic, young, um, arrogant, like people of his class were. <laughs> you know, he, he's not the grand man. Um, but at the end of this voyage, he hands over his papers as well to Hawksworth, which gives him a bit of a conundrum because he can't talk just as Captain Cook. He has to put in stuff that Banks said quite differently about things or some of the observations. So it's quite a problem as an editor. We'll get to that soon. But first, let's set the scene with another early sea expedition into the unknown ocean. I have started with this particular book, which is um, a book from the 1740s, really because it's setting the scene for um, the voyages into the Pacific that come at the end of the century. I, I thought it was nice to sort of give a bit of a background um, to what was happening in terms of books that describe these sorts of voyages into the Pacific, well, the beginning of the voyages into the Pacific. And the one I'm showing you here, which has lots of lovely plates in it, in fact, 42 plates, um, is in exactly the same sort of format that became common with all the voyage books from the late 18th century. And so they're all quartos like this. They're all this sort of shape, and they're all quite substantial works. They're all well-printed, and they're all illustrated. And in that way, they take this book as their model because this is the first one that try, that does this. Um, this is, and I'll open it up. It's, this this binding is very nice. It's it's contemporary, you know, eighteenth century um, gilt um, red Morocco binding. It's slightly um, fragile, but not too bad considering it's lasted from seventeen forty probably, with original marble paper end papers here. But it has quite a nice, elegant sort of title page, which again is a sort of mod is the model that, that later voyage books tend to follow. So it's called A Voyage Around the World. In the years 1740, 1741, 1742, 3, 4, by George Anson Esquire, commander in chief of a squadron of His Majesty's ships sent upon an expedition to the South Seas. Compiled from pages, from papers and other materials of the Right Honourable Lord Anson, published under his direction by Richard Walter, M.A., chaplain of His Majesty's ship, the Centurion, in that exhibition, illustrated with 42 copper plates. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks, yeah, absolutely. So this is the official account of the voyage, and it's published in 1748, which is four years after the voyage actually is finished. And one of the reasons why there was that delay is because there were two people actually involved in putting this book together. Walter was the eye was an eyewitness and was a member of the expedition, but apparently he was quite slow. And Anson called in a professional editor to <laughs> improve the work, speed it up a bit. Um, who's a man called Benjamin Robbins, and he's not acknowledged in this, but it's 
not dissimilar role that John Hawkesworth plays when Cook's Voyages are for the first of Cook's Voyages is printed. Hawksworth is a, um, a journalist and a professional writer, and Robbins is a journalist and a professional writer. And he's taking the accounts that all naval officers um, were required to keep. So every naval officer had to keep a journal when they were on board, and they had to hand them in when, when the voyage was finished. And so it's from those records that the official account of the voyage is, is produced. So this is Anson. There's a very fulsome, as usual, dedication to some important person, His Grace John Duke of Bedford. Um, this copy, which is Gray's copy, so this comes from the Gray collection, doesn't have the list of subscribers, but we actually have a second copy of this book in the collection, which was Henry Shaw's, um, also given to the library, um, which does have the list of subscribers, but it isn't in generally in as good condition, so that's why I'm showing this one. Um, <coughs> And there are about 1,800 names on that list of subscribers. So this gives you a sense of how big an edition they were publishing. I mean, if they've got 1,800 pre-orders and then they're probably making more to sell, um, they're doing quite well with something that would have been expensive, 42 plates. It's so popular that they go through four editions in the same year. And then they also, it keeps coming out. And usually not in quartos like this, but usually in smaller editions without the same um, level of illustration shows you its popularity, you know, that it was the precursor of these sort of exciting voyages, and it is an exciting voyage, and that's what we're going to talk about, really. He talks a little bit about the accuracy of the drawings because the person who to- who, who is drawing the illustrations in this it was actually a lieutenant on the Centurion, so he's not a trained artist. When Cook goes, takes people on his voyage, they are actually artists. This person is not trained. But like all naval officers, they're trained to draw charts and to draw profiles so that you can find your way into harbours and things. So they have some drawing training. <laughs> um, and this man is a man called Percy, and I'm now trying to remember his name, Percy Brett. I'll just show you. Here we are. Here's a picture of the, of the expedition um, once it gets down to... So they, they're going to go round Cape Horn. So they're going into the Atlantic. They're going to go round the South Point or, yes, round Cape Horn and then up the Pacific um, coast of South America. And their aim, this is in the 1740s, is to raid Spanish ships and or settlements, Spanish colonies along that coast, Peru particularly, Mexico, where they were aware that there was vast wealth. They were at war with Spain, so mm-hmm. it was legitimate. It wasn't it wasn't a privateering voyage, but like so many naval <coughs> engagements at this time, it's a little bit <laughs> it's a bit of a grey area because if you if as a naval officer you um, manage to take a ship, you actually do get a share of the prize money. So it's not just a question of um, handing it over to the country it's a way of making money or making well you know your own wealth which is one of the reasons why it attracted people to see given that the conditions were so appallingly bad so this there were eight ships that set off and there they are drawn by Percy Brett and they're there just on the edge of the Magellan Straits and at um in the Atlantic side of of South America and perhaps I shouldn't know, we'll leap straight to the end of the eight ships that went. One made it back home. Now that shows you the odds. Not only um, the difficulty of the ships, but also the, um, the conditions that the crew met with on board. And it was particularly scurvy that killed them. And so every time they were far away from land and um, they couldn't... Um, provision the ships, the crew got weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, so this is one of the um, sort of subtexts of this whole whole story is the fact that most, most of the people who went on this expedition didn't survive. So <clears throat> they cross through right down at the bottom of Patagonia, Tierra del Fuego, and they do this in April 1741. So it's the beginning of autumn. There's a 
drawing here which sort of indicates the these are all engravings of course which I haven't you know just just as a reminder um, so they're all copper engravings you can see on land there's the um, indication of a storm brewing um, and that of course was exactly what did happen um, so there they all are there's only seven ships there because one ship was a that they had six naval ships and they had two supply vessels and one of the supply vessels went back sort of partway through when they got over to um, the Atlantic side of South America. So <clears throat> that one had, had, you know, they'd used up all the provisions. So there were seven ships at this point. But as they rounded the Cape, they hit several storms and people got separated. They had a set of rendezvous positions so that, you know, if you if we get separated, uh, <clears throat> we go first here, then we go there, then we go there. And here is a chart which shows the tracks of the squadron as they round. And now it's a fold-out chart, so I'm going to have to hold this run, which shows the tracks of the squadron as they rounded um, Cape Horn. So... This is right. So it's called a chart of south of the southern part of South America with the track of the Centurion, so the Centurion is the flagship that Anson's on, from the island of St. Catharines, which is on the um, Brazil um, co Atlantic coast, to the island of Juan Fernandez, which is where the Centurion ended up um, once they'd all got scattered by a storm. So the Centurion ended up at Juan Fernandez. <clears throat> in which is <clears throat> inserted the variation in soundings observed on board her, together with her deviation from her estimated course in passing round Cape Horn, <clears throat> occasioned by the force of the currents. So this is before they could um, accurately gauge their long longitude, because um, <laughs> at that point it was easy enough to work out where you were in terms of latitude, but not so easy to know where you were sort of east to west, um, and they, the most reliable um, way that they dealt was, was what they called dead reckoning, which is basically just working out how far you've, how far you've gone um, in, a, in a course. But, I mean, they are sailing, you know, this, this is the point. You, your wind is your only way of getting anywhere. And many of them were also, by this stage, um, needing repairs, one thing and another, and um, they're, they're wooden ships, they've crossed the Atlantic, um, they're not in terribly good condition. They lose sight of two of their ships, and these two ships, in effect, decide to go home <laughs> because they're in such poor condition. They don't go to the rendezvous, um, they land back in the UK, and there is there are certain rumblings among the Navy as to whether they had deserted and whether they had got, nothing happens, they don't get prosecuted or anything, but there's certainly rumours about why they end up back there. So two of them have gone. Mm. So then Anson gets to Juan Fernandez and waits for other people to join him there in the hope that somebody will turn up one of his other ships. And they're there for about three months. And in the end, four of them join them slowly, get there. Um, in one, in in some in appalling condition, we've hardly got anybody on the boat to actually sail the thing because they're so sick with scurvy. And here are some of these lovely, what seems when you hear the story about what it was like, what seems like highly romantic views of life on one Fernandez when all these people were dead and dying. I mean, I, yeah. So there's little, there's this little tents, the camp, the captain, you know. There's, all dressed in his 18th century gear and his wig and everything, looking quite comfortable. <laughs> the worst um, experiences were undergone by the last ship, which was the Wager, and this is the one I want to talk about, and I better hurry up, um, because <laughs> this was the one that actually got wrecked. So the Wager <clears throat> hit an island, basically, again, not realising that they were as close as they were to the shore. And again, with a large number of the people on board ill and, and unable to, yeah, work the ship. And they, and they sailed into a bay and they got stuck in the bay and they tried to turn around and get out and they hit an island because they couldn't 
get out. And then, as the ship disintegrated on the rock, all hell broke loose, basically. It contained a lot of the alcohol, the drink for the, for the whole expedition. Um, and people thought they were going to die, so they just drank themselves to death. Um, they, yeah, they drowned. I know, they drowned in numbers. Um, and, I mean, once that, the, ones, the ones that did get ashore, and, you know, it's now... Autumn in um, Chile. Uh, it's co- they're cold and wet. They don't have enough of any sort of um, survival. They have to hide under, you know, the, the small little boats that they, that, that they manage to um, retain from the ship. Then there's all these arguments, basically, with the captain about what they're going to do next. And so the captain stuck to his guns and wanted to go to Juan Fernandez because that was the that was the what he'd been told. Among the rest of the crew. There was a particular group who formed around a man called Bulkley, Mr. Bulkley, who was the gunner. He was an officer, but he was a non-commissioned officer, so he wasn't a gentleman and an officer. He was a clever sailor, and as it proved, he was a clever sailor. He wanted to sail back through the Magellan through the Straits of Magellan and go back to the Atlantic coast. And he eventually prevailed upon most of the crew to follow him. And one of the reasons why is because the captain was an erratic sort of personality. And in a way, we got like a precursor of the, of the whole mutiny on the bounty thing with Captain Bly. In a fit of rage, he shot one of the midshipmen who was, who was you know, um, drunk and disorderly and generally um, awful. But he shot him. And what apparently turned many people against him was not that he shot him, but that he wouldn't let anybody sort of look after him and he died of his wounds two weeks later you know so it was a sort of cruel way to kill somebody and that cruelty seems to have been the thing that took people against him so you end up by getting three groups of people off the shipwreck all going in different directions the carpenter who was a man called Mr Cummins and Bulkley, who was the gunner, decide to extend the um, longboat, make it bigger, and try and get back. And this is what's called, they called this boat, sort of rebuilt boat, the Speedwell. It was an open, it was an open top boat, but they did sort of cover in a deck, so they, had, they did sort of like have a plank over the top where you could get underneath <laughs> in appalling conditions. They took about 80 people with them, but it wasn't really big enough for 80 people. And they left the captain behind, um, and obviously Bulkley thought that he'd left him behind forever, and he would die. And when he gets back to England, because he's the first one back, and of a very small group, I have to say, they had 80 initially. At one point they persuade 10 people to volunteer to go on land, (laughs) marines, um, and be left behind with some ammunition and stuff. Never heard of them again. (laughs) Then towards the they get through the Magellan Straits and then just as they're sort of rounding up the coast, they're trying to get to Rio Grande, they stop at a bay to get water. By this stage, they've only got the boat. They did start off with two boats, but they lose one of the little boats. So they can't get in and out to shore and they've got, you know, surf and all the rest of it. So people have to swim into shore to get water, to get any provisions at all or hunt or do anything. So a group swim into shore and then the boat sails away without them. And then, so that's a part, three people, there were eight in that group, three people in that group do survive and they get home to tell their story. How three people survived, I have no idea, because they become... They get captured by indigenous um, tribes and turned into slaves. And, you know, but I mean, miraculously, in the end, three of them get back. When Bulkley and Cummins get back, and there are now, what's that one? There are, and in the end, 29 members of the wager and seven Marines, so 29 of the crew and seven Marines, these are the the sort of soldiers who are sent along as part of the expedition, 
out of 248 men get back home. How any of them got back home is a miracle, really. Captain Cheap, meanwhile, left behind with a few of his officers, tries to make it up to Juan Fernandez <laughs> in a very small barge. They struggle and they have to go back to Wager Island because they're in so much trouble. They eventually meet some um, Native Americans who are prepared to try and take them by canoe, you know, in, in exchange for, for what goods they've got, which is just about nothing like a, you know, like a, a musket or something. And they do eventually, three of them eventually, including the captain, get back to Valparaiso on that um, uh, Pacific coast. Um, four of them do, actually, but one of them, who's a midshipman who is sick of Captain Cheap by this stage, won't go any further with them <laughs> and decides to join a party to cross by land over the Andes <laughs> rather than go anywhere more with Captain Cheap. <laughs> He's prepared to cross the Andes on foot <laughs> to get to Buenos Aires. <laughs> um, and he gets home as well. So, I mean, the sort of determination of some of these people to get home is astonishing. But, of course, when they get home, you know, what are people going to say? So the first group of people who get home are Bulkley and Cummins, and this is their justification. Um, they write, he writes a book explaining it all before Cheap manages to get home. Um, this is a faithful extract from the journal of two British seamen, you know. So this is a voyage to the South Seas in the years 1740 to 1741, containing a faithful narrative of the loss of His Majesty's ship wager and so on and so forth, um, by John Bulkley and John Cummins, late gunner and carpenter of the wager. So they, which, I mean, they're an, they're an unusual, you know, people to be taking on writing a book like this. Um, you know, when you read our account of the affair, you'll find the facts impartially related, the whole narrative written out without the least shadow of prejudice or malice, and no more in favour of ourselves than of the other officers concerned. We stand or fall by the truth. If truth will not support us, nothing can. <laughs> and that's the, this is this is the you know this is their this is their um, explanation as what happened. They might have been better to leave it out. <laughs> well, funnily enough, you see, they sort of do win a little bit of public approval because they are incredibly brave and they do face astonishing and they're incredibly innovative and Bulkley is really a leader um, in the way that Captain Cheat wasn't. And the saving grace was that at this point, and they point this out, both Anson's book and this book point out that the reason why the crew were persuaded or were not prepared to follow Captain Cheap's orders anymore was the fact that the Navy wouldn't pay people once their ship was wrecked. So they considered that they had a perfectly legitimate right not to obey their captain because the Navy was no longer paying them. They weren't employed by the Navy. Um, and it was as a result of this particular incident that the Navy did change the law. They had, a, you know, there was a change of law where they actually were, said they would pay the um, crew once a ship was wrecked. But every naval ship that was lost, there had to be a court-martial. So there was a court-martial, but it took a long time because the Navy was a little bit reluctant to blame Bulkley and Cummins because they had sort of stolen the march, in a sense, with their um, public relations exercise. So they said, we'll wait till Captain Anson, the Commodore, arrives... So Captain Anson, meanwhile, has been Juan Fernandez, has raided or tried to get some Spanish galleons and failed, has crossed the Pacific very, very, very slowly because he missed the trade winds. So his crew were in desperate, um, desperate straits. Get to the Marianas just about, um, lose another ship at the Marianas. You know, and eventually, um, eventually um, they get to the Philippines and they do, in fact, capture a Spanish galleon <laughs> with money. And so at the end of this appalling voyage, about, you know, like one twentieth of the crew <laughs> gets a measly amount of money from the Spanish galleon that they manage to capture. And they get back to to Britain slowly um, and, yeah, with, as I say, appalling loss of life. But when Anson gets back, he said, we'll wait till Cheap turns up. 
So, I mean, why did they think Jeep was going to come? But he did. Wow. <laughs> That's the astonishing thing. He actually did manage to survive. He did turn up. He and two others turned up, That his midshipmen. And this is the book by one of Jeep's party, <laughs> John Byron. And you will know the name John Byron. Well, you'll know the name Byron because this is actually the poet's grandfather. Um, and he wrote an, He wrote his story of, of being with Cheap um, and going up that coast um, with his with their Indian guide all the way up to Valparaiso. He told his twenty years later. So they're still, you know, they're still talking about this whole exercise and they're still justifying their actions twenty years later at the court martial. The Navy, um, probably because of this act and, and also because, you know, this, this, um, this fact that they um, weren't going to pay the crew, this, this loophole, if you like, did not investigate what happened after the, after the wreck. They were only interested in the wreck of the wager. So who was at fault for the wager being lost? And the only person they ended up by blaming was one of the lieutenants, Lieutenant Baines. Although he's not actually, um, he's not imprisoned or anything. He's just, you know, admonished for not having told the captain that there was land where there shouldn't be. When Anson writes about it in this, so this, this, is, this is produced in 1743, um, bulkly. Anson's voyage comes out in 1748. So he's got all the information that Bulkley's provided. He always calls it a mutiny when he's describing it in the book, but it never, um, it's never, um, yeah, it's never prosecuted as a mutiny. After that experience, I think I'd be hiking overland as well. Now let's jump ahead a decade or two and join the crew on board the Endeavour. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, controversy about the effects of Cook's voyages, um, which have all been aired in the media recently. Um, this is going back to the sources from obviously one perspective, which is the British um, perspective. Um, and that's how, really how I'm going to treat it. Um, I am relying, as many of you will expect, on Anne Salmond yet again um, for her... Um, sort of fascinating and empathetic um, description of the voyages of Captain Cook. And in a way, it doesn't hurt to really just open with a couple, with one of the things she said right at the beginning. Um, so she said, without doubt, um, Captain James Cook was one of the world's great explorers. During his three Pacific voyages, his wooden ships circled the world, navigating the ice-bound fringes of the Antarctic and Arctic circles, where sails froze solid and the rigging hung with icicles, sailed into tropical seas where they survived hurricanes, lightning strikes and volcanic eruptions, edged around uncharted lands and islands always in danger of shipwreck, and in one harbour after another found unknown people. For any time and in any culture they were remarkable voyagers, like the voyages of Odysseus or the Polynesian star navigators. At the same time, Captain Cook has become an icon of an imperial history. His voyages epitomise the European conquest of nature, fixing the location of coastlines by the use of instruments and mathematical calculation, classifying, collecting plants, animals, insects, and people. At the edges of the known, as the edges of the known world were pushed out, wild nature, including the savages and barbarians at the margins of humanity, were brought under the calm, controlling gaze of Enlightenment science long before colonial domination was attempted. Um, and what she talks about really in this book is how um, the um, Europeans um, were, well, the Polynesians were influenced by the encounters and the Europeans were likewise influenced by the encounters. So she tries to get two sides of the story um, using oral um, histories from um, Māori and from the other um, places that Cook visited um, as an attempt to try and get the other side of the story. What we have here is what is the, the, the British side in the sense that I'm looking at books, books printed um, at the end of the um, voyages, and their, the way that they um, 
sort of give us the stories really of what the what the cook and his his companion saw. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's really interesting from, but particularly for those of us who work here in special collections, is that people constantly come in and want to talk about Cook's voyages, often with a very hazy idea of which voyage they're talking about and who was on it and whether it was the first or the second and what the name of the ship was and, you know, whether Banks was there or he wasn't and who the, who the artists were. And, you know, like there's three voyages <laughs> and each one is different <laughs> and each one has a different, mostly a different personnel of people. Um, so... In this instance, um, we are looking just at the first voyage. So I'm only looking at the first voyage. Um, and the only um, official account of it appears in the two, the second two volumes of Hawksworth's um, edited version of all those voyages. So its title page, just to remind you, is an account of the voyages undertaken by the order of His Present Majesty, um, it's George III, for making discoveries in the Southern Hemisphere and successively performed by Commodore Byron, who we talked about last time, Captain Wallace, Captain Carteret and Captain Cook in the Dolphin, the Swallow and the Endeavour. So all of these voyages are all in this, this one set of volumes. Um, and so it says they're drawn up um, from the journals which were kept by the several commanders and from the papers of Joseph Banks, Esquire. So Banks is on this voyage with Cook, but only on this voyage with Cook and only on this one voyage with Cook. <laughs> um, and then it's written up by John Hawksworth, who, who is the editor, who was paid a phenomenal sum of £6,000 um, by the publishers to actually produce this edited um, compilation from all these journals. So it's, it's, it sounds as if it's in the first person quite frequently, um, but obviously it's not in the first person because it's written by Hawksworth. But this was the convention. And what um, I think it's at the beginning of the preface here where he talks about why. Um, uh, so, um, and what was tricky about doing the Cook and ba uh, this particular voyage from Hawksworth's point of view was that he had the papers of the naval um, officers, which was standard practice um, when they they were required by the Navy to hand in all their journals and logs when they got home, and that was that was what they had to do. Um, so that's standard practice. But he was also um, given the journals of banks who travelled in a completely different capacity. He had nothing to do with the Navy. He was a Royal Society, um, in a sense, appointee. Um, he was not a member of the Navy at all. Um, and you have to remember, actually, at this point, he was only 25. I mean, we tend to think of Joseph Banks mm -hmm. as, you know, the grand man leading the Royal Society, you know, sending people <laughs> left, right and centre to start Kew Gardens, you know, everything. At this point, he's still just a wealthy, amateur, botanist, enthusiastic, young um, arrogant like people of his class were <laughs> you know he, he's not the grand man um, but at the end of this voyage he hands over his papers as well to Hawksworth which gives him a bit of a conundrum because he can't talk just as Captain Cook he has to put in stuff that Banks said quite differently about things or some of the observations so it's quite a problem as an editor um, and I think he does talk here about um about how he tried to do that without... Um, As the materials furnished by Mr Banks were so in interesting and copious, there arose an objection against writing an account of this voyage in the person of the commander, which could have no place with respect to the others. The descriptions and observations Mr Banks would be absorbed without any distinction in a general narrative given under another name. So he had this issue around how, what the voice he was going to use. Anyway, he, he comes up with a, a version of how he's going to do it. Um, and so Cook is, in complete contrast, of course, to Banks, not a member of the ruling classes at all. He's the son of a farm labourer from Yorkshire. Um, you know, he grows up in quite, I mean, not desperate poverty, but certainly not um, affluence. Uh, and he, it's only in his teens um, that he becomes an apprentice to a Quaker um, ship owner in Whitby on the coast of Yorkshire. Um, and he spends quite a lot of time 
in this Quaker household, which people say, you know, also has a sort of bearing on his attitudes and his comments when he's writing about his discoveries. Um, he, um, he enters the Navy. Um, he first spends quite a lot of time on merchant shipping, well, on the shipping of, of the ship owner who, who, who runs coal ships. Um, he, go, he does decide to, to join the Navy, but he has to start right at the bottom as an able seaman. Um, and he does that in his, I think, late 20s. And he works his way up the ranks of the Navy. And, and you know, if anybody who, who has read any of the great novels of 18th century um, Navy, British Navy will know, um, you need patrons in order to, in order to get promoted. Um, and most of the commanders um, in the Navy were members of the ruling classes. I mean, they, were, they weren't um, sort of, you know, a, a labourer's son from Yorkshire. So he's a very unusual person to be in charge of this expedition. Um, and he's old compared to the others. He's 40. Most of the other people on this boat are in their 20s, <clears throat> including, as I said, Banks, who's 25. Um, and this is the first big major expedition. He's He's been in charge of one other ship and he's done a lot of surveying and mapping, um, which, of course, is, is his big um, skill, if you like, technical skill. So he was involved in the, in the, in the um, Seven Years' War um, and he mapped the St Lawrence River um, for the British when they were um, attacking Quebec and fighting the French in Canada. Um, and then after that, he's involved in mapping Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. Um, so he's got lots of technical skills, but he hasn't really been in charge of a whole group of men before. Not that number, because there's over 90 people on this boat when they head off, because Banks takes, you know, two artists, two other um, botanists, um, two servants. Um, I'm just trying to remember, there's another couple of other people, I think. So there's a whole raft of them who are all supporting Banks's work, which is around, you know, collecting a new flora and fauna um, that he comes across. And... And as they leave, they've only just, as they leave, they only just find out um, Wallace arrives back from Tahiti just as they're leaving, um, which changes the perspective of their voyage slightly. So the plan was that they were going to go out into the South Pacific somewhere um, and observe the transit of Venus um, because this was um, seen if different scientific um, observations were taken from different parts of the world, it would help them to be able to cal calculate the size of the universe and the distance of um, Earth to the sun and so on. So they needed different <clears throat> astronomical observations from different parts of the world. Initially, they hadn't decided where they were going to go, and this was a Royal Society um, sort of project, not, not the Navy. Um, and... It was only really when Wallace came back and told them about how glorious Tahiti was um, and how wonderful it all was there that they all decided, oh, that's the place to go. So they all, all um, that's why the, the expedition went to Tahiti. The ship itself was a, um, not a particularly glamorous um, uh, vessel for, for the Navy. Um, Cook was only a lieutenant. He wasn't a captain. Um, despite the fact it had quite a lot of people on board, it wasn't very um, impressive as a naval ship. And consequently, um, when they did leave, which they left in um, 1768, um, heading out to, um, I think, August or something like that, but I've forgotten the exact date, um, when they headed out um, and they reached, you know, they sailed across the Atlantic and reached Rio where they wanted to um, get more supplies on board, the Portuguese authorities in Rio, because at that point Brazil was under Portugal um, regime, um, wouldn't let them on board because they didn't think they were and they were a genuine <coughs> Royal Navy boat. They thought they were actually either spies or smugglers or some other devious group because the boat didn't look the part. I mean, and in a way, I know somebody I think said something about, or well, maybe, you know. Maybe they were just hedging their bets, you know, sending off this um, small little boat um, with a not very important person in charge of it. So if it all went crashing down, nobody would care. I don't know. It's sort of quite an interesting suggestion. 
Um, but what I did want to show you was it puts slightly in slight perspective um, this letter that we have. And I don't normally show you letters, but because we're talking about Cook and because we have this letter, I thought, well, you know, this is an opportunity. Um, and what this letter is, this was actually written um, by Cook from um, Rio de Janeiro, where they stopped, where he was trying to get supplies. So for that reason, I think it's sort of interesting to see it. It's not a glamorous letter. Um, it's not a glamorous object. But it does, um, it does sort of connect you very closely to that moment in time when they were heading into the Pacific. Um, and it's dated at the top here, Endeavour at Rio de Janeiro, 30th of November, 1768. Um, so this is the point at which they've attempted to land... They've been told they're not allowed to get off the ship oh. <laughs> um, because they don't trust them. Um, I think Cook does get off the ship. Banks is very, very cross, as a privileged young man would be, <laughs> accused of being a spy because <laughs> he can't get off the boat and and start collecting, you know, plants, which is really what he's there to do. Um, it's signed by, by Cook and everything, and it's got a whole lot of dates on it which show you how long it takes because what he's saying really is, um, <clears throat> he's writing to the um, to the to the naval office um, to get them to pay the bills that he's chalked up um, with the suppliers here in Rio. So it does give you a list of you know the dates when they receive it. You know the the sort of um, you can see the the uh, the process, the naval process of paying um, for supplies across the world, um, which. It would be quite challenging, as you would expect. Um, so the above bill to be accepted and charged. So um, that's that's the cook letter. Um, so now we're into the actual voyage. Um, and one of the things, I, you know, I think is really interesting when you're looking at these books is, you know, we're quite familiar with seeing a number of these images around. They float around quite a lot, the pictures that that we have of Cook's different voyages. The charts and the maps float around an awful lot. And what is interesting is to see them in situ and to see which of the books they come from and where they've come from, because almost all of them have come out of the book. They're not, they don't emerge um, separately. Um, I'm talking about engravings, and certainly the engravings don't. Um, what happened in terms of the imagery around the voyage was that um, Banks employed two artists to go with him. Um, one was a man called Alexander Buchan, who was employed to be the the sort of topographical artist, was the person who was going to draw, you know, do the views and the imagery and all the rest of it of where he'd been, where they'd been. Um, but he actually was an epileptic, and he didn't live long on on the voyage. He died quite soon after they got to Tahiti. So he's not the person responsible for the images that we get of New Zealand um, and those early encounters because he's, he's dead by then. And yet he was the official artist um, in Banks' party. There's another person, Sidney Parkinson, who you probably have heard of, who was also employed by Banks to be an artist, but his job was to draw the flora and fauna. He was the botanical artist. He wasn't supposedly um, there to, to draw all the rest of the voyage. But inevitably, without um, Buchan there, he is the person who mostly whose images we mostly know from this first voyage. Um, the charts are all Cook. Every one of them is Cook. Um, and they're all um, done in that sort of meticulous way by <laughs> sending a little boat out with a lead... <laughs> You know, how many fathoms, how many fathoms, how many fathoms, you know, all of that. And then all the um, use of, you know, triangulation using the sextant and all the rest of it and the stars and the sun. So it's all done by Cook. Um, and, yeah, we'll see some of those as we go through here. So beginning of the voyage, um, having received my commission, so it's in the voice of Cook, even though we know it's Hawksworth, um, having received my commission, which was dated the 25th of May, 1768. So this is when he became lieutenant and a commander. This is the, because before this, he was just a master. He wasn't even, you know, he didn't even have the rank of lieutenant, which is like the first gentleman's rank in the Navy. <laughs> um, 
I went on board on the 27th and so on. So that they've done Friday the 26th of August. We got under sail and put to sea. So that's the time period. And in that gap between May and August, that's when Wallace comes home and tells them all about Tahiti. Um, so they head straight to Tahiti because they've now got the coordinates and they know where they're going. I mean, obviously they stop in Rio on the way and various other places, but basically they're heading towards Tahiti. Um, and here um, quite soon in the book we get, or in this volume, which is volume two of Hawksworth, um, this is Cook's chart of Tahiti. Um, chart on the island of Otahiti, which is how they spell it. Of course, the spelling is all tricky because this is before there's been any standardisation of how they're going to write down the languages they're hearing. And so it is a little bit like a, I can't quite, um, by Lieutenant J. Cook, 1769. So, you know, this is how these maps first appear. They, they appear as fold-out charts um, in the book um, with all the information, you know, engraved by somebody else, but but all taken from Cook's hand-drawn charts, which end up, of course, back um, when when the voyage is finished, back with the Navy, where they, you know, remain. Um, the sort of story about where all the manuscript material from these voyages ends up is sort of another quite interesting story. I mean, they're around the world, these bits. I mean, you know, the bulk of them remain with... Um, the Maritime Museum in London, but um, for various reasons, different bits of them obviously escaped or, or some some were copied or versions were produced. And there's quite a lot in Australia, as I'm sure you probably know, um, at um, um, New South, State Library of New South Wales and at the National Library particularly in Canberra. Um, they have the um, Cook's Journal of the Endeavour Voyage in the National Library in Canberra. Um, so they arrive here, and here we've got some more plates. Um, and this is the plate, presumably, and I don't know, it's not long after they arrive in Tahiti, so I don't know if this is Buchan or or, or if it's um, Parkinson, because it doesn't say. But this is a picture of the breadfruit tree, which got them all excited um, and eventually sort of produced that voyage of Captain Bly into the Pacific to... Um, you know, to get supplies of the breadfruit tree so that they could um, import the tree into the Caribbean, the West Indies, um, as food, um, because this, this is a staple. So there's this, but then this presumably must be Parkinson, even though, as I say, they don't, they're not signed because this is an actual image of the plant. Um, <clears throat> so um, when we get here... When he gets there, he's very worried, having heard about Wallace and the excitement with which the crew embarked on their Tahitian adventures. Um, he's very worried about losing control of the crew when he gets to... And there's certain talk um, at different times about in the Navy about it's, you know, when they're at sea, they can maintain discipline. The minute they get into port, they're in trouble because they take off and want to do things and... Don't do as they're told and you can't control their behaviour. Um, and one thing I was just going to read out was before <coughs> before Cook left, um, <coughs> left the um, UK, he was given a list of hints. Um, these aren't the official orders because the official orders, you know, had that bit about... Um, the secret orders said, you know, um, you know once you've left Tahiti... Um, look for the southern continent, because that's really what the Royal Society and the Navy, that was that was both in both their best interests. They want to find this mythical southern continent that they still think might exist. But the Earl of Morton sends these hints. Um, he's, the, he's the current president of the Royal Society. And after hearing how Wallace had um, opened fire on the Tahitians with his guns, um, he was horrified by this, and he sent... Um, he gave Cook these lists of things that he shouldn't do or shouldn't allow to happen while he is in, you know, in charge. Um, <clears throat> and so Cook tries to turn these into rules when he gets to Tahiti, and the rules are written down here. Basically, it is rules to be observed by every person and all belonging to His Majesty's Bark for better establishing a regular and uniform, uniform trade for provision 
um, to endeavor one number one to endeavor by every fair means to cultivate a friendship with the natives and to treat them with all imaginable humanity. And so it goes on. They're trying to avoid um, a, um, a confrontation such as Wallace, you know. And when they get there, um, they meet with friendly, if not to say anxious, sort of responses by the Tahitians who are sort of expecting that they're going to get um, a similar treatment, really, as they did from Wallace. Um, but they do manage to spend, you know, three months there, relatively um, violent-free, violence-free, but not entirely. Um, and the outbreaks that do occur um, tend to happen between, either, you know, like sailors or junior officers um, when they're feeling under threat um, and not when Cook's there. Um, and it's usually, he's usually quite, um, you know, sort of uh, tries very hard to keep that friendship between the Tahitians and the crew. Um, and, of course, it's in Tahiti um, that they meet um, Tupaya, who becomes such a big um, part of the trip into New Zealand on the Endeavour, um, because he um, is... He decides to come with them. That's that's the upshot of it. Um, they make friends with him, um, and he decides to come with them. And he's um, uh, a sort of from the priestly caste um, of people, um, but he's also, in a sense, an exile from his own land, um, which is one of the other islands of, of Tahiti. Um, and he's living with um, one of the um, groups of... Um, Tahitians who are aiming for control of the island. So there's a power struggle going on, basically, as the British arrive, something that initially they know nothing about whatsoever and only slowly grasp. Um, and so when Cook leaves, um, there is a suggestion that Tupaya leaves because he thinks he's going to be... Um, he He's not trusting the political situation and thinks that there's going to be another outbreak of war, which happened between Wallace and Cook anyway. Um, but certainly he's very interested in um, taking Cook back to his island, um, uh, um, Rayatia, I'm never quite sure how you pronounce it, but anyway, um, because he wants the British to expel his the invaders from his on his homeland back to theirs, which is Bora Bora. Um, so there's a degree of of jockeying about um, you know who who's who wants what the motives are, if you like, for either of either parties. Um, they do go back to the, his island um, and they go around it and they um, and this is um, a sketch again, probably from Parkinson um, of. Um, the Tahitian, um, again, can somebody hold that because it's a fold-out plate? Thank mm. you. Um, so, again, this is Parkinson because Buckin is no longer there. Um, so, basically, after this, um, they head towards New Zealand. Um, and, you know, Cook has been has some, some idea of where... Of Tasman's landfall, he has some idea of the of the um, of the latitude um, where he should be looking for New Zealand because of Tasman, um, and he's hope and he's he's doing this because there is speculation that, that that this coast of New Zealand is the edge of the Great Southern Continent. That's why they come here. They think we might be the Great Southern Continent. Um, that's the point. Um, and so that's the reason for his circumnavigation of the whole of the country, because he is proving um, that it's an art, two islands or three islands. He's proving that these are islands. We're not the edge of a continent. The rest of the, particularly banks, think we are the southern continent. And so it's Cook who is the sceptic, and he's the one who proves that it isn't the southern continent. Um, and this, of course, is the chart, the famous chart of New Zealand. And this is where it first appears. Um, in this official count, um, and that's it there, and that's the chart, um, and that has on it the um, course that the endeavour took um, around the country, with the first port, port of call, of course, um, being here on the east on the east coast, um, where they go north and then 
south and then north again. Um, so there's a bit of sort of back and forwards around they turn there. Again. Mm-hmm. They turn again. Exactly, Kate, turn again. Uh, and then they go <laughs> up and around here and all the way up and around. And then there's a lot of tacking around North Cape, note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must have been hard to get around the top. And then there's there's the this trip down here until they get to the top of the South Island where they land in Queen Charlotte Sound, which becomes one of Cook's favourite anchorages. So that's mm-hmm. there. They're there for a bit and refuel and, you know, and then they come around the west coast. Um, no, actually, no, they don't. They go up, they go through the Cook Strait. So this is where we, of course, we get, go through Cook Strait and then they go up to Cape Turn again oh. because that means we've gone around the whole of the North Island. We proved that's an island. Mm-hmm. And then they go down the east coast of the South Island and all the way around and then up around again to Queen Charlotte Sound. So it's a it's a loop to um, prove that this is an island. Um and obviously, as we know, um, as, as as they arrived, they met people. <laughs> and um, one of the comments, of course, more recently has been that the only reason really that um, there wasn't more violence, which of course there was violence, um, was that they had Tupaya on board who, as a Tahitian, was able to communicate and understand at least partly what was being said to him. And so he could both um, give them, give Māori context, but also warn them when they shouldn't do something because this will be dangerous. Um, you know, he said things like, they're going to kill you! <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so, I mean, it really... And, of course, <laughs> and it happened. Uh, again, not with, um, you know, with from Cook's point of view, with a lot of remorse and upset, but it happened um, because people felt under threat. Um, and they were under threat because they were being repelled um, as invaders, which is what they, to all intents and purposes, were. And I think I will just nip over that one because that's just talking about um, how hard it is. He just talks in a little bit here in the middle about um, the difficulty of, of creating that chart of New Zealand and how they had to stay offshore for a lot of that trip around the South Island. Otherwise they get blown up against, they didn't actually set foot on land so they couldn't accurately um, ensure that their measurements were absolutely perfect because they were too far offshore. So he he acknowledges that there will be some mistakes in his in his map, um, and again, these are often presented as, you know, maps, um, and they do come up for sale. You may know, um, and that means that they've taken them out of Hawksworth. Is the truth the truth mm-hmm. of it? Or if it's not, if it's something else, it's been a reprint, and it's a reprint from Hawksworth. But that's what it is. Um, and then, of course, there's these lovely imagery of the, of, again, by Parkinson probably, but again, not, not signed, of um, the first um, encounters between Māori and Europeans. And I think this is a fascinating picture because you've got them in similar-sized boats wearing, that's the one I had in the case for real gold, um, <clears throat> where... Um, yeah, there's the Europeans rowing backwards apparently with eyes in their head, which I think is interesting, <laughs> which is what it sounded like. Um, and so that's that one. And then, oh, yes, one little thing. Oh, there's Cook Strait. Yes, that, that, well, that's another map, Cook Strait, Queen Charlotte Sound. Um, but I didn't notice this little bit, which I do think is lovely, from from um, the, um, the, the, the stay in Queen Charlotte Sound. Um, the ship lay at the distance of somewhat less than a quarter of a mile from the shore, and in the morning we were wakened by the singing of birds. The number was incredible, and they seemed to strain their throats in emulation of each other. This wild melody was infinitely superior to any that we'd ever heard of the same kind. It seemed to be like small bells, most exquisitely tuned, and perhaps the distance in the water between might be no small advantage to the sound. In upon inquiry, we were informed that the birds always here always begin to sing about two hours after midnight and continuing their music till sunrise, were like our nightingale silent the rest of the day. Anyway, it's just, you know, one of those interesting little snippets that come out in, the, in these descriptions of the voyages. And then right at the end, you know, Cook proves that he said, <clears throat> um, all doubts being now removed about the southern, you know, about the southern continents. I've been round, been that, been that way, been around the other. Um, all doubts being now removed, we hauled our wind to the eastward. And so to the eastward means, head, means heading towards Australia. 
uncover a truly unique collection, visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pātaka Kōrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.